Iran's President Silva Kira and rebel leader Rehik Machar have signed an agreement to end more than 13 months of conflict in the African country. The deal was signed last night following negotiations in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. It suggested in the new deal that Kira would remain president in a new government while Machar would become vice president. The two rivals had previously signed and then broke at least six ceasefire agreements since fighting began in December 2013. Between troops loyal to Kira and defectors led by his former deputy Machar around the capital, Juba. The clashes have left some 10,000 South Sudanese dead and forced around one and a half million people to flee their homes in the world's youngest country. The Nigerian army says they have repelled a major offensive launched by Boko Haram on the biggest city in the northeast of the country. The army says hundreds of insurgents have been killed in the fighting in Maiduguri, while scores of civilians also died. Thousands of residents in the city of 2 million have fled. For weeks, Boko Haram has been closing in on Maiduguri, the group's spiritual birthplace. Its third attack in a week on Maiduguri came as Chadian forces launched a winning offensive against Boko Haram in Gamboru and Kofata. The African Union resolved to create a 7,500 strong force to fight Boko Haram. Tunisia's Islamic party in Nahda has given its consent to join the secular Neda Tunis in a coalition government aiming to bolster stability in the North African country. Nahda leader Rashid Ganoushi made the announcement following a meeting with Prime Minister Baji Kahid Esepsi. Last month, Esepsi was tasked with forming a new government by President the agreement helps reinforce stability in the country, which is in a transitional period four years after the uprising that ousted former leader Zen al-Abdin bin Ali. Security has been tightened in Lesotho's capital, Maseru, after a security guard was killed and Prime Minister Tom Tabane's bodyguard was wounded following a shooting between factions dressed in army uniform. The incident comes as Lesotho prepares for elections on the 28th of this month. Police have cordoned off the royal palace in Maseru. Late last year, South Africa intervened after an attempted coup in the mountain kingdom. South African Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa is the SADC-appointed mediator in the Lesotho peace talks. Ndakwana Gatane reports. There was shootings inside the capital, Maseru, but um, Prime Minister Tom Tabani, if you um, look at him specifically, he's still under very heavy uh, South African or SADC security here in Lesotho. And finally, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon says the Ebola epidemic in the most affected West African countries is far from over, but the tide is turning. The World Health Organization recently reported that the number of new Ebola cases recorded in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone fell below 100 for the first time in seven months. Ban speaking to African leaders gathered in Addis Ababa for the annual African Union Summit, said he was proud of the work they did together. Jocelyn Sambera reports. The African Union has been on the front lines of the fight against the Ebola epidemic, the UN chief said. Member states have been contributing resources, expertise and supplies, as well as deploying hundreds of health workers in the West African region. 
Mr. Ban called the mobilization inspiring and stressed that the national, regional, and international collaboration was paying off. He urged African leaders to continue to demonstrate the same solidarity until Ebola is gone from every country. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The 24th African Union Summit concluded on Saturday with the adoption of Agenda 2063, a vision and action plan towards prosperous and peaceful Africa. The summit convened in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, where African leaders deliberated on a number of different issues, including peace and security on the African continent and the Ebola crisis, amongst others. In his closing remarks, President of Zimbabwe and Chairman of the AU, Robert Mugabe, hailed the summit as successful. report. The African Union High-Level Summit, which saw President Robert Mugabe take over the rotating post of African Union Chairman, replacing Mauritania's President Mohamed Old Abdelaziz, was attended by scores of regional heads of state and government. The meeting discussed terrorism and mitigating against diseases such as Ebola. Several highlights from the summit include the formation of a 7,500-strong regional force to combat Boko Haram, the development of an African Union foundation to help finance the AU's growing budget, and the announcement of a new launch date of May 2015 for the tripartite free trade agreements, which will unify and integrate three regional trade blocks in sub-Saharan Africa, amongst others. In his closing remarks, AU Chairman President Robert Mugabe said they had a frank, robust and fruitful exchange of views on key challenges confronting the continent. At this assembly, we have rededicated ourselves to the Pan-African ideals of our founding fathers. We have made important decisions which, if correctly implemented, should propel us into the Africa we want, a peaceful, integrated, people-centered and prosperous Africa. He says the adoption of the Agenda 2063 framework represents an important milestone. This blueprint is an embodiment of our collective resolve to accelerate socioeconomic political transformation of our continent. Africa is a continent endowed with abundant resources. We have agreed as part of our 2063 agenda to leverage our resources for the benefit of our people. To achieve this objective, we have to intensify our efforts to value add and beneficiate our mineral resources as well as to industrialize and create employment for our people, especially 
our youth. The summit has also taken a concrete decision to accelerate the efforts to establish Africa's Center for Disease Control and Prevention towards preparedness and response to disease outbreak on the continent. The summit expressed concern over the situation in some areas such as Libya, Mali, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Somalia and DR Congo. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Matangu in Johannesburg. AU leaders have also agreed to send 7,500 troops to fight the Boko Haram insurgency in northeast Nigeria. The African Union's Peace and Security Council urged the heads of state to endorse the deployment of troops from five West African countries to fight the terror group. Channel Africa's Ntlantla Mashangu has more. A number of security crises around the continent dominated the African Union summit, the main one being how to stop the atrocities by Islamist terrorist group Boko Haram in West Africa. The summit unanimously approved the deployment of a multinational force to Nigeria to combat Boko Haram. The AU Peace and Security Council Commissioner Ismail Chegui told a press conference that a meeting will be held in Cameroon soon to finalize procedures related to the troops' deployment before going to the United Nations for issuing a resolution sanctioning the deployment. Now that we have the Peace and Security Council uh, authorization, there will be a meeting in a few days in uh, Cameroon in order to finalize the concept of that operation and uh, thereafter we will go to New York to seek a resolution under Chapter 7 so that we can really make this uh, force operational on the ground as soon as possible. We will have uh, indeed the challenge of financing this force and uh, discussions are ongoing And uh, for us, indeed, the best will be within the assessed contributions of UN. As you know, the fight on terrorism can be a long one. But we are going to explore all the possibilities. More than 13,000 people have been killed and about 1 million made homeless by Boko Haram violence since 2009. For the last five years, Nigeria has battled a fierce Boko Haram insurgency that has ravaged the country's volatile northeast and claimed thousands of lives. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has welcomed the AU's move to send a force to fight Boko Haram, which has increased its attacks as Nigeria prepares for a February 14 election. Terrorism, cross-border crime and other transnational threats continue to challenge us. The murderous campaign raised by Boko Haram demands stronger and more coordinated action from us all. I strongly support the AU's moves to establish a multinational joint task force which is consistent with the UN human rights due diligence policies. The summit expressed concern over the situation in areas such as Libya, Mali, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Somalia and DR Congo. The leaders also discussed the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea and appealed to international creditors to forgive the three countries' $3 billion debt to enable them to finance their recovery from dealing with the virus. The 24th African Union Summit concluded with the adoption of Agenda 2063, a vision and action plan towards prosperous and peaceful Africa. South Africa will host the 25th African Union Summit in Johannesburg in mid-2015.
Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. The brutalization of women during armed conflicts remains a persistent and serious problem. That was the message from delegates who addressed the UN Security Council on Friday at a debate on the protection of civilians from physical violence. For the first time, the meeting focused on challenges faced by women and girls in armed conflict and post-conflict settings. Stephanie Kutrix reports. Violence committed against women, including rape, sexual slavery, and forced prostitution. These are the kinds of reports the Security Council described as unacceptable and yet said it continues to receive. The Assistant Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Kyung Wa Kang, said the brutalization of women remains a consistent and persistent feature of conflict. Simply, crisis exacerbates gender inequalities. While entire communities suffer the impact of armed conflict, women and girls are often the first to lose their rights to education, to political participation, and to livelihoods, among other rights being bluntly violated. Ms. Kong added that international law is clear. Parties to conflict are responsible for meeting the basic needs of persons under their control. But time and time again, parties to conflict violate these basic obligations with impunity. The Director for International Law and Cooperation at the International Committee of the Red Cross, Helen Durham, said victims willing to seek justice should be able to do so without fear of reprisal or stigmatization. In armed conflict... Rape and other forms of sexual violence are serious violations of international humanitarian law and entail individual criminal responsibility. All states have the obligation to criminalise these violations in their domestic legislation. A young Somali woman echoed this message. Ilwad Elman, who is representing the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security, said she has seen firsthand the catastrophic consequences of violence against civilians and lost too many colleagues, friends and family. She called on the Security Council to make changes. I urge the Security Council to mandate inclusive gender decision-making in the design, implementation and monitoring of protection of civilian strategies, including those responding to acts of gender-based violence. This means consulting women from the beginning, including those displaced and with disabilities. To start facilitating these efforts on the ground, the United Nations has already deployed 17 women protection advisors to six peacekeeping operations. Stephanie Kutrix, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it. Le soleil élevé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibonji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 
25 years ago today, parliamentarians and South Africans heard the surprise announcement that Nelson Mandela would be freed and that the African National Congress and other liberation movements would be unbanned. Many were caught by surprise by this announcement from the then-President F.W. de Klerk. It has been widely debated that de Klerk was pushed into making the decision, while others argue that he was heroic in taking that stance. Zeline Merrington reports. A watershed moment in South African politics. The steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. I repeat, the steps that have been decided are the following. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party and a number of subsidiary organizations is being rescinded. People serving prison sentences merely because they were members of one of these organizations or because they committed another offense which was merely an offense because a prohibition of one of the organizations was in force will be identified and released. Prisoners who have been sentenced for other offenses such as murder, terrorism and arson are not affected by this. The media emergency regulations as well as the education emergency regulations are being abolished in their entirety. The security emergency regulations will be amended to still make provision for effective control over visual material pertaining to scenes of unrest. This decision saw a range of milestones that changed the country forever. Among others, the late President Nelson Mandela was released. The African National Congress, the South African Communist Party and other political parties were unbanned. In 1991, multi-party negotiations started. In 1992, a referendum was held where there was overwhelming support for reform. And in 1994, South Africans held an historic democratic election. For some, F.W. de Klerk is the hero in the story. For others, he is not. A political analyst, Kolela Mangu, suggests that de Klerk himself undid much of the good. Former President de Klerk has been recognized for the role that he played, but he has undermined that role himself with the statements that he has been making over the past few years about whether apartheid was morally wrong or not. He was asked on CNN by Christian Amanpour about whether apartheid was morally wrong. And he said, I can say that only in a qualified way. So clearly, he hasn't decided whether apartheid was wrong or not. But Dave Stewart from the F.W. de Klerk Foundation says it was the only rational decision to take. I'd, I'd respond to it by referring them to what President Mandela said at F.W.'s 70th birthday. He gave them full honor for the role that he had played. He said it couldn't have been done without F.W. de Klerk. And I can't understand why some people find it so difficult to understand that white South Africans, the white leadership, was also looking for a long-term solution. We didn't want to go on with this incessant conflict and uh, unrest and repression. We wanted to find a long-term solution so that all of our con- all of our children would have a future in this country. That report by Zeline Merrington. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, so Africa.
Tanganyika na Ungare. Going back in time to today in 1989, ailing South African President P.W. Bota resigns as leader of the ruling White National Party but remains president. And ironically, today is the day that former President F.W. de Klerk announces that South Africa's first democratic elections will be held and that was in 1994 and going ahead to... The year, rather to the year preceding that, 1990, F.W. de Klerk lifts a ban on African National on the African National Congress and promises to release political prisoner Nelson Mandela. A threefold history today: 1990, Malawi's National Assembly begins a review of the 2014-2015 budget today. Lilongwe passed the 2014-2015 billion dollar budget with amendments to allocations for the National Assembly, which received an additional amount and local government finance committee whose vote was reduced. George Mango reports from Blantar. Well, Malawi's National Assembly is scheduled to meet from this afternoon until early March. What is clear in the minds of many people is that the House should make a law on disaster issues. This they say without fear that it has to be the first priority on the agenda despite it being a mid-term budget review session. Various people think that the budget review session should involve discussions on a possible increased allocation to the Department of Disaster Affairs and Climate Change to help people affected by floods from now onwards. Through this, it is evident that the affected flood victims would ably replant crops during the winter season and provide them with shelter through the housing and cement subsidy program as promised during the 2014 campaign trail by the current president, Peter Mutharika. Chairperson of the Indian charity group based in Malawi, Malayali Association, Jaraj Kopranne, feels there is need for the government to work more on the disaster policy. Disasters always will happen. The government should take the precautions before happening these things. If he, the government have the plan, if the weather forecasting and all properly doing, these disasters should not uh, affect the uh, Malawi very much. If we are planning a uh, disaster uh, movement before that one, before it is happening. Statistics from the Malawi government at the moment indicate that floods and heavy rains have killed a hundred plus people and displaced 635,000 more in 15 out of the country's 28 districts. Although aid is being supplied, there are concerns that the majority do not have access to the assistance. While still, heavens are continuing across the country, a move that means more cases of flood victims are likely to increase. But as Parliament meets from today, parliamentarian for Chikwawa North, Harry Thompson, 
whose constituency is also affected, thinks the parliament sitting will give them an opportunity to squeeze government to provide more funds towards disaster affairs. Annually, the floods come up. One year we are flooded, the next year we have drought. So the people of the Shiri Valley are in sufferance all the time. Now, I do remember when we were uh, campaigning, CADICOM and another couple of groups called all the prospective or aspiring MPs to sign a declaration that when we go to Parliament, we will fight to pass the disaster bill. And that's one of the things we're going to do so that it's meaningful. Every year we are assisting, but it's not having any effect. So we have to look at this and say, what will the, the lasting answer to this problem be? We have to put our minds together and say that it's not enough that we look at the same people, giving out the same kind of assistance, knowing that next year we're going to be here again. However, Capitol Hill, through Vice President of Malawi, Salos Chilima, said recently when he launched a program meant to give out relief items to flood victims in the country, that government was to come up with a document on disasters. It would be very sad if people don't hit the call and then we are faced with a similar situation in a different district. Uh, we should move. There are vulnerable groups here. There is the very young children under five and then we also have got mothers. Some of them are expectant. We had a case where one of the mothers actually delivered over the last 48 hours. We need urgent support and more of it and now. While the issue of lights will top the debate, there will also be talk on whether to confirm newly appointed police inspector general Paul Kanyama following the resignation of Lord Zonzi. State of business affairs now in that long way will achieve economic growth lower than 5.8% projected area for 2015 following preliminary assessments. The assessment show that the damage caused to the economy is estimated in million dollars. Figures from Capitol Hill are also enough evidence that business operations have come to a halt due to floods, meaning that the midterm budget review has come at the right time. As you can hear in the background, people are queuing so that they get support from a number of donors that have been here presenting reef items to the flood-affected people. One thing for sure is that the disaster police has to be put in place. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The United Nations Information Center, UNIC, in Pretoria and its partners last week hosted a special educational outreach program about the Holocaust for about 300 high school learners from various schools in and around Orange Farm on the outskirts of Johannesburg. The event was part of the UN International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust celebrated annually on the 27th of January. It sought to encourage the young minds to draw lessons of humanity from that brutal act of hatred and intolerance, a genocide which led to the death of six million Jews and other minorities. Jane Matebula has more. 
Studying World War II and the Holocaust forms an integral part of the South African Grade 9 social science curriculum. As this year marked the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War and the founding of the United Nations, shaped deeply by the experience of the Holocaust, the United Nations Information Center in Pretoria once again brought together learners for a reflection of the Holocaust, a systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jews by the German Nazi regime and its during the educational event for learners, the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, Tali Nates, explained how the Holocaust was put to an end. The Allies, the United States, the UK, England, the Russians, and some free forces, you know, France, Poland, and so on, they were victorious, they liberated Europe, the Russians came from the East, Western Allies came from, from the West, and slowly they liberated the camps. The Russians were the on the 27th of January 1945 they arrived into Auschwitz and so what happened they saw the horrors they saw the victims and they found children that had medical experiments made on them and liberated the children as they were conquering Europe and liberating all those thousands places of, of, of suffering the Holocaust story came to light Although the then leader of Germany's government, Adolf Hitler, committed suicide, a number of trials were conducted for the purpose of bringing Nazi war criminals to justice, as Nietzsche explains. He decided to kill himself. He had a very new wife. He just married Eva Braun in the morning, and both of them committed suicide in the bunker in Berlin in April 1945. But others were caught. So there were trials. After the war, there were many war crimes. The famous one is the Nuremberg trial, where the top leaders of the Nazis were put on trial. And exactly those questions were, why did you start the war? All those war crimes, crimes against humanity. For the first time, this new word, genocide, that was only invented in 1944, was discovered and discussed. And many of those leaders were hanged by the Allies. But after Germany had to cope and to come to terms with their past, it's not easy to say my father was a perpetrator. It's not easy to say my country murdered millions in the most cruel way. But I must say that Germany really, really is doing the work. It took them time. It took them a long time to speak about it, to manage it. And I must say that Germany today is a country that is standing for the values of democracy and that is definitely looking at its own past with guilt, but also with learning. Asked what are their thoughts on the Holocaust history, this is what the learners had to say. I've learned that I must treat people so good and do not forget about the, uh, where they come from, their backyard. What I learned is that we must treat people equally, we must sin be choose and we must have acceptance. And I felt very bad because people were starving and were unhealthy and others were dying. I think that we people in our country, we must respect other people's religions and what they do believe. We must not judge other people because we, we don't know maybe they are right or if they are wrong, but we must always help them every time. I feel pain. There was a wrong thing that happened there. I just want to say I have learned more about Adolf Hitler. I didn't know much about Hitler, but now I know. Yiftach Ashkenazi is an acclaimed author and scholar from Yad Vashem's International School for Holocaust Studies in Jerusalem. The Holocaust was such a terrible thing that each person 
when he learn about it, it's gonna change his world a little, make him think about a different thing. If you ask me, I want to people when they learn about, learn about the Holocaust to be more sensitive. The history of the Holocaust is not only relevant for Jews, but the lessons are also universal. Although the world vowed to never again allow a genocide, it remains intriguing why then has the globe seen various other genocides unfold. The 1994 Rwanda genocide in Africa, for instance, is a notable one in recent years. Back to Talinates. I think that it's really such an important point. You know, after the Holocaust, the world came with these statements, never again, never again. The United Nations was established after the Holocaust because in a way of that genocide. So the, we have a United Nation. In 1948, there was a convention, a law, international law against genocide, saying when genocide happened, we all have to intervene. But did we? So Rwanda 20 years ago happened. April to July 1994, a hundred days, three months, almost a million, mainly Tutsis, murdered. And did the world intervene? No, they didn't even want to call it genocide because if you call it genocide, international law forces you to intervene. So if you don't call it, you don't have to intervene. So did we learn? And the question is important because we still say never again, but the never again is in a way until the next time. So did we learn? I think that we are in the learning process. In the last 10 years, in 2005, the United Nations passed a law that is called the Responsibility to Protect Civilians. That is actually a very important law. And I think that we are struggling trying to protect civilians if it is in Libya or it was in Central African Republic or Nigeria and so on. We are struggling. We're not there yet. We are not winning yet. But I think the awareness is important, talking about it is important, and creating new laws to help us to make never again a reality. That's Tali Needs, director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. South Sudan's President Silva Kiir and rebel leader Rahik Machar sign an agreement to end more than 13 months of conflict in the African country. The Nigerian army claims to have repelled a major offensive launched by Boko Haram on the biggest city in the northeast of the country. And Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party lords the African Union for electing President Robert Mugabe as AU chairperson, saying African leaders completely adore the 90-year-old leader. Those are the stories making headlines. A new report by the International Livestock Research Institute says informal markets in Africa and elsewhere in the developing world provide essential sources of food and income for millions of poor with milk and meat that is often safer than in supermarkets. To find out more on this, Wandile Kalipa spoke to Christina Rossil, coordinator of the Safe Food, Fair Food Project at the International Livestock Institute in Uganda. Because what markets, they are marketing more than 80% of the food in sub-Saharan Africa. 
If you go to some rural areas, there's not even a supermarket. So people access their food through informal markets. And that is why we must protect and safeguard them. And how are these misguided efforts to control the alarming burden of food-related illness in low-income countries risk intensifying malnutrition and poverty? Okay, the problem we have is that our decision-makers, well, they, it's not a problem, they want us to eat safe food. However, they are often guided by misperception. Some products, they have hazards, which are agents that can make you sick, for example, in the milk or in the meat. However, because of common practice of boiling, for example, this agent does never reach the stomach of the consumer. So eventually the food is turned safe. And that is why we advise policymakers and decision makers to look into the food chain. Look how is that food product harvested, how is it handled, how is it prepared, and eventually how it is consumed. Talking about these misguided efforts, uh, what is their role on improving food safety? Well, these misguided efforts are that our decision makers, they believe everything in wet market or an informal market, it looks dirty so it must be unsafe. But we think this is wrong because of what I've just said, the common practice of heating and boiling food, for example. And these markets, they provide food to millions and also work to millions. So that is why we cannot just ignore them, but we have to try and make them better. And that is why we, in doing our research, we look into the food chain and we look into the risks that come up in the food chain. Looking at the safety aspect of it, how safe is food sold in informal markets in Africa and elsewhere in the developing world? Well, we cannot generalize this. It depends on the food. We look mostly into animal-sourced food, that is milk, meat, and fish, and eggs. And we found even in sub-Saharan Africa, there are big differences in the safety, and they are mostly related to cultural practices of preparing the milk. If you look at East Africa, for example, 90% of the milk is boiled, which turns it into a very safe product. And often we found... It's just contaminated because the storage containers are dirty, they were not cooled. And in West Africa, on the other hand, 90% of the milk is consumed raw. And even in some of the cultural groups, like the Fulani people, they refuse to boil the milk, which exposes them to many more diseases, such as brucellosis or tuberculosis. And we have the same with meat and with fish products. It is nothing that we can generalize throughout the developing countries or throughout Africa because Africa alone is so diverse. Now, talking about the concerns about food safety in informal markets, looking at milk in Mali to fish in Ghana to chicken in mm-hmm. Mozambique and beef in Kenya, what could be said about that? Because, I mean, most of these uh, people who have been consuming these uh, products have been doing that uh, for years. Uh-huh, that's correct, and that is also what people in Ethiopia, for example, say, that a man is not considered a real man if he doesn't have a tapeworm, which they can often get from eating raw meat, which is a very long tradition in Ethiopia. So, And that is what we are saying, you know, just because 
it is sold in informal market, it's not necessarily unsafe because people, they've been consuming products like this for hundreds of years and they have found their own risk mitigation strategies. If you look at village butchers, for example, they always slaughter in the morning when it's cool. They only slaughter one animal at a time because they don't have a refrigeration in the village. They would always hang up the carcass in a tree to avoid contamination with dust and with feces on the ground. And the same with the milk. Many groups, cultural groups in sub-Saharan Africa, they are fermenting the milk. In some of our studies, there was one from Ethiopia and one from Kudiwa that is in the book. It shows that fermentation can actually reduce the burden of risky microbes up to 97%, which is quite a lot. Talking about the diseases caused by what is termed unsafe milk and meat in low-income countries. I mean, for instance, myself, I grew up in the rural areas where we used to go out in the cattle post and we used to drink milk from the cows directly from the other, but we never got ill. Exactly, because, I mean, one thing, we cannot assume that all the cows are sick, right? We assume that most of the cows are healthy. So that raw product, that the raw milk is initially safe. So, however, if you have a few cows that are sick and milk is then, for example, bulked after the milking and sold in the market, one sick cow can spoil the entire milk that is sold in the market. But essentially, we are assuming that most of the cows, they're actually healthy. So, drinking from the other, oh, many people have done it like this, especially also in West Africa, and they're still doing it, also drinking from the other of the goats, and they are not getting sick because their animals are not sick. So that is why we say you have to look at the food chain. That was Christina Russell, coordinator of the Safe Food Fair Food Project at the International Livestock Institute in Uganda, on the line from Kampala, speaking to Wandile Kalipa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I think you're seeing it in a lot of different ways. I mean, overall, the the best way that I can describe it is the ambassador is using Twitter to demonstrate to their constituencies and their following the work that they're doing, to really keep them connected and show, I was in a meeting with X ambassador and we talked about Y topic, or I care about A issue and I'm really going to do X to help that out. To what extent is tweeting controlled by governments? Is it part of a sophisticated communications campaign or is it just something ambassadors are doing casually? 
I think it really depends on the country. I think countries that have a lot looser restrictions on what their people, what their politicians, what they can actually go out and say, you see it being a little bit more open, whereas others where there may be some less sort of ability to, to work freely, you'll see it's a little bit more controlled and things are going through a press office and they're really making sure that a few hands see things before they come out. To what extent is this changing diplomacy, especially at the UN? I think what it's doing is making diplomacy a lot more real-time. You look at 10 years ago, if an ambassador comes out of a meeting and would say, I just met with so-and-so and we were talking about this issue, that would either be done in the form of a letter or a blog post or an article or have to go out through the media, where now it can happen in real time. We have examples of ambassadors tweeting from the Security Council. What do you make of that? I think, again, that really just shows to you the real time, the democratic, the very social nature of Twitter, that I, as a, as a U.S. citizen, can follow what my ambassador is saying when he's there doing important work at a global level. Which countries are leading the field in this type of communication? I would say if we look at that, the number one is Sweden. A number of people in their government are just very, very prolific users and really out there. You're also seeing France doing a great job of being very, very effective and having a lot of people on Twitter. And then finally, you're seeing things just out of the Nordic countries as a whole, You know, whether it's the Crown Prince of Norway or his government are doing just incredible work there. And which countries should be doing better? I actually think my own country should be doing a little bit better. Um, the U.S., we tend to see the stuff coming out. It doesn't necessarily feel authentic or human. Now, they're very active. They're pushing out content. But it seems to come from an official office as opposed to a person. And what are the dangers of diplomatic tweeting? If the rhetoric goes too far and if it starts rallying people up, you know, not that it's necessarily going to cause a conflict, but what you don't want is some sort of diplomatic rhetoric back and forth then causing hours upon hours upon hours of Twitter arguments or wherever else. You know, I think it's very important to use it constructively, but not necessarily to use it as an online weapon. Our economics update up next with Tabisa Luhoku. Malawi's national budget, or rather, assembly, begins a review of the 2014-15 budget today. Lilongwe passed the fiscal $1.9 billion budget with amendments to allocations for national assembly, which received an additional amount, and local governance finance committee, whose vote was reduced. African countries need to strengthen their tax and customs authorities as well as financial institutions to stop the illegal flow of money from the continent. This is one of the recommendations of the high-level panel on illicit financial flows from Africa. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki, who chairs the panel, says it's important for African countries to have the capacity to deal with the problem. It's necessary for our governments to strengthen, for instance, the tax authorities, customs authorities, financial intelligence units, the supervision by the central banks, reserve bank, of the other banks to see what monies are moving in and out. Is this legal money? Is it illegal money in all of that? So the strengthening of the capacity of the African governments to be able to deal with this. South Africa's accommodation sector has shown some positive economic growth. The Tourism Business Council of South Africa has released the Tourism Business Index for the fourth quarter of 2014. 
The survey uses the accommodation sector as well as conference sectors, businesses and attractions, the foreign exchange and tourism retail businesses to calculate uh, and monitor the growth or decline in the country's tourism sector. Head of Hospitality and Tourism for Grand Thornton, Julian Saunders, has said it is all positive growth. Namibia will see a 5.7% economic growth this year, low inflation and higher mining output, coupled with the foreign investment. IJG Securities Namibia says for this year they expect to see economic expansion of 5.7% driven by an ongoing construction boom in Namibia, which is likely to continue for a number of years as well as foreign direct investment inflows into the mining industry. Inflation is set to fall dramatically through 2015 on account of cost-to-push factors deriving from tumbling oil prices. Egypt's pound has weakened to 7.51 per dollar from 7.49 at the last sale, the weakest level it has been allowed to reach since auctions began in December 2012. The rates at which banks are allowed to trade dollars are determined by the results of central bank sales, giving the bank effective control over official exchange rates, though there remains an active black market in the pound. Financial indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, we come alive to you from Johannesburg. We're based on Radio Puck. The US dollar trades at eleven six two South African Rand, nine five two Botswana Pula, six four seven Zambian Kwacha, six six British pound, eight eight across the Euro, Gold one two seven nine dollars, platinum one two three one dollars an ounce, brand crude five one six seven cents a barrel. That's an economic update on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thanks, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, President of the Tunisian Football Federation, Wadi Al-Yari, has resigned from his position in the organizing committee of the Africa Cup of Nations tournament. The Carthage Eagles of Tunisia were eliminated from the AFCON tournament at the quarterfinal stage with a 2-1 defeat to hosts Equatorial Guinea in Bata on Saturday night. But the Tunisians have found the loss a bitter pill to swallow, with their contingent, including head coach Georgie Zlinkins, taking it out on the center referee Rajahad Sakrim from Mauritius for what they termed biased officiating. According to the Tunisian media, Al-Jari quit his membership position and the AFCON organizing committee following Saturday's loss to Equatorial Guinea. The Tunisian media also reports that Shikib Balkahiri, who is a member of the finance committee of CAF, has also left his position. Meanwhile, Tunisian defender Bihal Mushini says they bowed out of the tournament only because the referee wanted to steal the lamblight. 
I think the referee was the best player in the speech today, so this is why. After every, all of the players, they were very upset. I think everyone can understand because we came here to represent our country, and now all of the country they are very upset because we didn't lose because it was bad. We lost because the referee was better than us. The Democratic Republic of Congo defeated their neighbours Congo Brazzaville 4-2 in an exciting match of the tournament thus far at the Stadio de Bata in Equatorial Guinea on Saturday night to book their place in the semi-finals of the 2015 AFCON tournament. However, DRC's victory was not without tribulation as they had to overcome a two-goals deficit early in the second half. Dore Ferraboy as well as Thievi Boforma gave Congo the cushion they needed with goals in the 55th and the 61st minute. But that move proved to be detrimental as they awakened the snoozing giant that would retaliate with four goals in the last 35 minutes. Meanwhile, their captain Yusuf Mulumbu, who was also struggling with an injury, says he credits experience with the way they were able to make a comeback. Yeah, that's unbelievable. You know, when uh, they scored the second game, I was almost down, you know. I thought we were going to go out, you know. But I think uh, he helped us to score quickly, you know, after the second game, after the second goal, sorry. And uh, I think the experience, uh, the experience play in this game, you know, because we had Bokani, Robert Kijaba, you know, they know how to manage the game, you know. And I think after the second goal, we didn't quit. We start to push, we start to push and we score the first goal and the second. And I knew after that, from the second goal, we're going to win the game. Myanmar, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire took their regular places at the, Africa Cup, at the Africa Cup of Nations semi-finals by beating Guinea and Algeria on Sunday as the tournament returned to normal to return to normal after recent controversy. Wilfred Boney finally came to life, scoring twice for Cote d'Ivoire and a late Jovino goal completed a memorable 3-1 win for the Elephants as they reached the last four for the fourth time in six tournaments. Four-time champions Ghana comfortably dispatched surprise packages Guinea 3-0 to reach the semi-finals for the fifth time in a row. The Black Stars will now face hosts Equatorial Guinea in Malambo on Thursday, while the Avoyans, who were champions back in 1992, before the emergence of the so-called golden generation, will play the Democratic Republic of Congo in Bata on Wednesday. Well, those are your sports news at the Sour Stage tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. AU leaders agree to send troops to Nigeria to tackle Boko Haram. And UN says women and girls face unacceptable violence in conflicts. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, pro- producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, 
rather Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Salif Keita with a track titled Africa.